If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Now, we've been going through the book of Mark. We're in a sermon series on the book of Mark. But before the month of December, we wanted to do a brief sermon series called Advent, where we look at the story of Jesus' birth, that Jesus is God in the flesh coming to us and being born as a baby. I had this kind of like... uh, aha moment about 10 minutes ago as we're singing these songs about the birth of Jesus and we have a little toddler come up here. I don't know, most of you saw this little baby here and uh, it's Christina and Peter's child and, and Peter's up here and Christina's in the back and Christina whispers over to me, different parenting styles. I would have grabbed that kid a long time ago. I can say that because Christina's not in the room right now. Um, but I just had this image of like, as we're singing this song about God in the flesh being born to us uh, as a baby. And I'm looking at this baby going, you know, Jesus was once that little. It's just just a crazy, crazy idea. Um, But it is a reflection of God coming to be with us um, and experiencing Every single thing that we have ever experienced, including being a little infant. And so we're going to take the next few weeks going through um, Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus. Now, there are four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of them take the time to tell us about the birth of Jesus. Matthew, and then the other one is Luke. Okay, yes, good, students, good, Luke. Luke's um, telling of the story is probably um, the most well-known. It's probably the most quoted. Um, Different reasons why. Um, If you put Matthew's telling of the birth narrative of Jesus next to Luke's telling of the birth narrative of Jesus, you would notice that they tell um, a lot of, they tell the story from different perspectives. For example, Matthew focuses way more on Joseph, while Luke focuses way more on Mary. Um, Luke, the way that he tells the story, it's so positive It's so polished. If you read um, Luke's gospel, you will find that the characters even start breaking out in song. They start singing. Now, you probably didn't notice that because when you read it, you just read it. You don't like go, oh, it's time to sing. And you start singing the Bible. But that's literally what was happening. Luke's gospel is like a happy musical of Jesus's birth. Um. Matthew's gospel, on the other hand, is not as polished. It is not as happy. In fact, um, if I were to describe Matthew's gospel, his telling of the birth of Jesus, I would describe it this way. It's kind of messy. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to read a a portion of Jesus' genealogy. And Matthew goes out of his way to talk about different people that were in Jesus's family line that were frankly not quite the greatest of people. 
Do any of you have like um, a, a great grandfather or a great uncle or something? You're like, yeah, we don't talk about him or we don't talk about her. They, you know, does anybody? Okay, some of you have that. Some of you, you don't. You don't. That's great. But if you go back further enough in the line, you will find it. Or maybe you're that person. Maybe not. Um, but Matthew, like, intentionally goes out his way to be like, hey, let me tell you all about the messy people in Jesus's family line. And then when we're introduced to like the conception of Jesus, we are told less about Mary and we are told more about Joseph. And you know what we're told about Joseph? The very first thing we are told about Joseph is he wanted to divorce Mary. Merry Christmas. And then if you read the story of the wise men, you're like, oh, these, these great wise men, oh, it's awesome. No, it's a story about a powerful king trying to manipulate these people so that they can kill Jesus. And the wise men have to literally like hit a back road, get out of town so that they don't get murdered. The way that the story of Matt, that Matthew tells about Jesus' birth, it ends with Mary and Joseph and Jesus realizing we have to flee for our lives. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they go where? They go down to Egypt and they live as refugees. And they get news after they have left that King Herod had gone into Bethlehem where they were where they no doubt had friends, no doubt had family, and you know they get you know what they hear? They get news that Herod had murdered every single baby boy two years old and younger. Merry Christmas. And frankly, guys, I'll just be honest with you, I didn't really notice this until uh, I was reading the book of Matthew. Uh, a, a month or two ago, I'm like, man, this is, like, Matthew's, like, intentionally telling us some really messy things. And then I realized, isn't this the story of Christmas? The story of Christmas is God coming to us as a human in our messiness, listen, I know you. you. You look good today, but I know what's going on during the week. I know some of y'all got anger issues. I know some of you have used the D word in your marriage. I know that there's probably some here who struggle with an addiction to pornography. Like, you and I, we have lives that are messy, that are broken. And Matthew, and we're going to learn a little bit more about who Matthew is. Matthew wants you and I as readers to understand that the story of Christmas is a story about God coming from heaven down to earth to meet us in our mess, to save us and give us hope. I don't know about you, I need hope in my mess. And so Matthew starts 
his story of Jesus by painting a family lineage that's a bit messy. And he does this, we're gonna find, not on accident, but quite purposeful. So Matthew 1.1, Matthew starts this way. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Everybody say, the son of David. And the son of Abraham. I didn't tell you to repeat that, but go ahead. You did great. I'm going to be here for a while if you're just going to repeat everything I say. But it lets me know that you're, you're listening. And so Matthew begins this way. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. Now, you and I, we, we don't find this interesting at all, but I'll point it out. Is Ta- who's Tamar? Is Tamar a male or a female? Female. This is the first female that Matthew introduces. And did you notice it's, it's father of, father of, son of, son of. Did you catch that? This is the way that genealogies were written. It was father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son. Do you know in Iceland, it's still the same thing, right? You've got like David's daughter or David's son. It's, it's, it's genealogy from what? From who? The father. And if you really, really want to take a nap today, you can open the book of Numbers and you can read all of these genealogies. And you're like, why is it all of these male names? It's like never, ever, ever a female name. Well, it's because it was a, a reflection of, of the culture, right? But Matthew says, Oh, um, by the way, I can't help but tell you, um, the mama in that picture was, was Tamar. And you're like, okay. You and I are like, okay. So, okay, let's keep reading. Let's, don't let me hold you up, okay? By Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abnadab, Abnadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Oh, there's another woman. Ladies, can I get an amen? Yeah, you can be like, amen. We'll talk about Rahab. And you'll be like, oh, wait, hold on. Never mind. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, woman number three. And the women said, amen. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who's the wife of Uriah? So hold up. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? Why doesn't he just say Bathsheba? (laughs) Oh, that's the woman that David had an affair with. Hmm. Thanks, Matthew, for pointing that out. Matthew goes on, and for the next several verses, he continues on in, 
in the genealogy of Jesus. Tells us at the end, I think it's in verse 17, um, Matthew lays out the genealogy of Jesus in three separate sections. Um, Each section is 14 different generations for a total of 42 generations. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you can read into it and you can go, oh, actually, Matthew missed some. There's actually some names that are in there. There's more than 42, but Matthew is is trying, he's doing this for a point. There's some symmetry to this. Three sets of 14, 42 generations. Now, why does Jesus, now, why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Because let's be real, this, this is not like, this is really, really exciting reading here. Oh, I love reading genealogies. You're like, okay, let's get to it. Some of you just totally skip over it and you're like, oh, let's get to the part about Joseph. Yes, right? Now he's doing this for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that there are many prophecies about the Messiah that were to come. Well over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament made about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Probably one of, if not the most significant prophecy about the Messiah to come was that he was to come from the lineage of who? David. And so Matthew is going, hey, hey, my goal is to point to you to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So before we even get going, let me start by saying and showing that Jesus is from the lineage of David. Check that prophecy off and light the candle, right? I think one of the other reasons why Matthew lays out 42 different generations is to display to us the faithfulness of God. Within these 42 generations, God had made promises of what was to come. We sang the song, come long expected Jesus. They had waited and waited and waited and God was faithful. And And God was faithful even when they weren't faithful. Not so good about God, that God is faithful even when you're not, that God is good even when you're not. Your character does not define the character of God. And Matthew's like, I wanted to point that out. But here's what I wanna get to here. Why these, why these women? Why, again, Matthew, you could read this and go, well, he's just telling the story of the family lineage. That's all he's doing, right? Well, why didn't he include the wives and the mothers of all the other people? Why these four women and no others? Let's just go through each of these women for a moment. Tamar. Some of you, you remember the story of Tamar. I think it's in Genesis 38. Um, Tamar has a father-in-law named Judah. She had married Judah's oldest son. He was actually a really bad guy, and so he died. And the custom of that day is that um, if, if 
if the older brother had a wife and they could not have children, and if the older brother died, the younger brother next in line would, would marry that woman. It was a kind of provision for widows. It, was, it, was, it had to do with mercy and justice. And so um, the second brother marries Tamar, and he is also a bad fellow too. And he dies. And so here you have Tamar, who's a widow twice over with no children. And so Judah says, hey, I've got one more son, Tamar. I'm gonna take care of you. My son just needs to get a little bit older. Once he gets a little bit older, you can have him in marriage and you'll have children and you'll be provided for. And Tamar says, great. And she goes home to her father's home and she puts on the widow's clothing and, and, and the younger brother grows up and Judah's like, hey, I don't want her. I don't want that younger one to marry Tamar. And so Tamar's hung out left to dry. And so Tamar's got a plan. I do not recommend this plan, ladies. She dresses up as a prostitute. She positions herself in a place where she knows that Judah, her father-in-law twice over, is gonna be, and she seduces, in a way, Judah and has a baby with her father-in-law. You're like, I thought I saw an episode on Jerry Springer where this happened. And Matthew's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's in the family line of Jesus. Let's move on. And then he's like, oh, and then there's this woman named Rahab. Some of you, you grew up in church, so you probably know the answer to this. Rahab had a nickname. Again, ladies, I don't recommend that you have this nickname either. See if you know it. The, the nickname went like this, Rahab the... I know, you're like nervous to say it out loud. Okay, don't be scared. Rahab the, Rahab the prostitute. That was, that, was, that was her nickname. When we get to heaven, she's gonna be there. I do not recommend the, Rahab the, oh, I mean, the, the, from the line of David. Yes, line of, line of Jesus, yes. That was Rahab the prostitute. Then we get to Ruth. You're like, ah, she's so sweet. There's a book of the Bible named after her. She was a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's like in Deuteronomy 28-ish, somewhere there, it says that those who were from Moab could not enter into the temple or the tabernacle up to the 10th generation because they were so despised. This is Ruth. And then we get to the unnamed woman, the wife of Uriah. And Matthew, Matthew doesn't even just say her name, Bathsheba. Matthew's like, the woman that David committed adultery with. These women, each and every one of them, had a reputation that was largely one of sin 
of being an outsider and of brokenness. And Matthew intentionally goes out of his way to remind us that these women were in the family line of Jesus. Why? What? Okay, Matthew, clearly you're doing something here, but it's a puzzle. Why do you do this? Well, why not? Why not? You know, Sarah, she's pretty good. Why not put her in the in the genealogy? Why these four women? I think we get the answer to that question when we take a look at Matthew's own story. Because remember, who's writing this? Who's writing it? Matthew. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew is writing this. Because Luke actually writes a genealogy of Jesus as well, but does not include what Matthew includes. I think we find what's going on underneath this, what, what kind of point Matthew's trying to make and for you and I to get when we read his story. Look with me at Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9, Jesus is all grown up. It says, as, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector. So now Matthew's being autobiographical here. And he's sitting at the tax collector booth. Why is he sitting at the tax collector booth? Anybody know? He's a tax collector. That's are sharp. So he's a tax collector. Now, I know probably most of you know this, but it's worth pointing out that um, Matthew is Jewish, Matthew is living in Israel, and Matthew is a tax collector. To be a tax collector was to be of the worst of the worst sinners. In fact, tax collectors were considered so sinful that you didn't even group them within the sinners. Whenever you hear tax collectors talked about They'll use the language of, well, you know, Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And then there were the sinners and the tax collectors. And the reason why they were despised so much is because they were hired by Rome and they were required to basically make a certain amount of money so that they could kick it back to Rome. But whatever they collected above and beyond that, they could keep for themselves. And so tax collectors were known for being unjust and overcharging and cheating people. So this is Matthew's reputation. Hey, Rome needs 10%, but you know what? I wanna buy a new pair of shoes, so let's make it 15%. Give me the money. You know, Rome, you know, that's 10%, but I'd like a nicer house, so I'm gonna make it 20%. And he's gouging all of these people. Now, some of Jesus' disciples, they were fishermen, and fishermen paid taxes, maybe even to Matthew. And so Matthew is hated and despised. And so Jesus walks by, and Jesus said to him two words. What are they? Follow me. To which 
Peter, James, and John behind Jesus are like, uh, he, you're confused, Jesus. Do you, do you know who this is? Do you know how many times he's cheated me? They're probably looking at Matthew like, mm-mm. No, I know he said follow me, but I'm saying, mm-mm. And in Matthew, it says he rose and he followed Jesus. And then here's what happens next. And and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners, did you catch it? (laughs) We can't put the tax collectors with the sinners. They're too bad. Tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So get this. Jesus sees Matthew collecting taxes, says, Matthew, I see something in you. Come follow me. Matthew's like, okay, where are we going? And Jesus says, to your house to have a party. Let's go. And so they go to Matthew's house, and there's a party, and Jesus is like, invite your friends. And Matthew's probably like, you probably don't like my friends. And Jesus is probably like, hey, listen, I called you. I like you. So Matthew's like, all right. So he calls his friends, which happen to be fellow tax collectors and sinners, and now they're having a feast. And now they're enjoying one another. And then this happens. And, and when the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders. These were the, in our day and age, the church leaders. These were the pastors. Guys, I'm not like this, I promise, I promise. But that's who these were. These were the religious leaders. These are the guys who are supposed to have it right. But we're gonna find they have it all wrong. When they saw this, they said to his disciples, they said to Jesus' disciples. Now, I imagine this. The reason why they're talking to his disciples and not to Jesus is because Jesus is in the house of Matthew partying. When I say partying, like, listen, okay, they're having a good time, okay? They're eating. This is Thanksgiving together here. And the reason why they tell his disciples, because I'm guessing the disciples are not quite sure if they should go in and hang out with Matthew or not either. The Pharisees, they know we can't go in that house. Matthew lives in there. Sinners live in there. Tax collectors live in there. They got, like, sin all over them. And if we get near them, we're going to be all unclean, literally. We go in there, then we can't go in the temple. And so they stay out, and they're, they're on the, you know, outside the house, hey, calling over one of the disciples. Why does your teacher, this Jesus, eat, hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus gets word. Jesus is like, oh, I can answer this. And this is where it's at. Let's lean in. And when, and with, it says, and why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, of a physician, but those who are sick. I just wanna pause here for a moment. Jesus 
gives an analogy, and in this analogy, he's a physician. He is a healer. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the story of these four women this week, and, and of course, they are known, they have this reputation of being outsiders, reputation of, of being sinners, but as I thought more about it, you know what all these four women had probably most in common of all? They had all experienced a tremendous amount of brokenness. Don't tell me Rahab, as a young girl, grew up going, you know what I wanna be when I grow up? A prostitute. This is a woman who was abused sexually. How much brokenness this woman must have had? Tamar? Two of her husbands die and she has no children? Ruth, she was a widow? You read her story, she was in poverty, basically living on welfare. Bathsheba, you read the story, it's easy to go, oh, she's kind of this co-conspirator in adultery. You read the story and you find that maybe, maybe Bathsheba, she didn't really have much of a choice. When the king of Israel says, hey, come into my house, do you have a choice? And then her husband is murdered, and then she has a baby. Do you remember what happens to the baby? The baby dies. The level of brokenness that these women had, some of you have experienced. Some of you have experienced being a widow, a widower. Some of you have experienced the pain of not being able to have children. Some of you have experienced the pain of a miscarriage or holding a child in your arms as they die. All these women, tremendously broken. And Jesus says, I'm a physician. I'm a healer. Those things that are broken, I make whole. And then Jesus says one last thing. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For here it is, listen to this. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can we get in our mind what Jesus is saying? He is saying, I'm here for sinners. Give me the messiest people there are. That's who I've come for. So I imagine Matthew. This was a messy man. And he knew it. And I imagine him being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing out this story of Jesus. And he, and he begins going, okay, I, I need to start from the beginning. Start, I need to start from the genealogy of Jesus. And he starts writing the names. And then he's like, oh, that, that the mother of that child was Tamar. <laughs> That's in Jesus' family line. I'm gonna put her in here. <laughs> 
Rahab? Yep, let's put her in here too. Because I think what Matthew understood more than any of the other gospel writers was this. That Jesus came for sinners of which he was the foremost. And Jesus didn't just come for sinners, he actually came from sinners. Jesus came for sinners. I love what the New Living Translation says. The New Living Translation gives the last part of this verse. It says, Jesus said, I came to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. The most counterintuitive thing about Christianity is that you are declared right with God, not when you get yourself cleaned up. But when you surrender and acknowledge to Jesus, you never will. That's the gospel. Are you a sinner that can admit it though? And what I love so much about what Jesus says is he, he says, I have come to call. He, do, he doesn't say I have come to forgive, though he does come to forgive, right? But he says, no, 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 I have come to call. This involves relationship, right? Jesus came and has come to meet you in your messiness to meet you in your sin, to meet you in your brokenness. And he came for that purpose. He did not come because you look good. He did not come because you got your stuff together. He did not come because you've checked all of the righteous box. He did not come because you go to church. He came because you're broken because you're a sinner, because you're lost, and because he longs to save you, forgive you, and invite you to follow him. Jesus wants to meet you in your mess today. Listen to him say to you, follow me. Because that's why he came. I thought about this sermon and I thought, you know what? I imagine Jesus coming to me and saying, Zach, follow me. And I wonder if that's exactly what he wants to say to you this very moment. In your mess, no matter where you're at, you're like, man, I'm far from God. (laughs) Listen, that's why he came. And he's saying this to you. Follow me. So put your name in there. Melissa, 
hear Jesus say, follow me. Just say your name, say your name, and then just hear Jesus say, follow me. Will you follow him? The invitation is there for Jesus meeting you in your mess to bring you to himself. This is Christmas, amen? Let me pray for us and the worship team is gonna come up. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and you, you've come to meet us in our mess. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our, our sin, we need you, Jesus. And so Lord, may we not in our pride think that we're righteous, but Lord, may we surrender in humility and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a savior. Lord, may we hear your voice today saying, follow me, and may we have the courage to follow you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.